Hello. Ni hao. Bonjour. Hi. Buenos dias. Guten tag. G'day. Welcome to the Husida Podcast, a production of the Human Services Information Technology Association. Welcome to episode eight of the Husida Podcast. My name is Dr. Jimmy Young. I'll be your host. In this month's episode, I interview Dean Justin J. Miller and discuss the article, Virtual Support Groups Among Adoptive Parents, Ideal for Information Seeking, which was published in the Journal of Technology and Human Services in 2019. Dr. Miller is the Dean and Dorothy A. Miller Research Professor in Social Work Education at the University of Kentucky College of Social Work. His research and academic interests focus on child welfare and youth involvement in juvenile systems. His work has shaped practice with foster youth and has informed a myriad of policies and practices related to participatory engagement with youth and families. Dean Miller founded the Self-Care Lab at the University of Kentucky in 2017, which is dedicated to empirically investigating self-care among helping professionals. Dean Miller has conducted groundbreaking research on broad-ranging self-care and wellness research with social workers, educators, nurses, law enforcement, teachers, and attorneys, among others. He's also authored numerous juried papers, reports, and briefs, and notably, Dean Miller has co-authored Activating a Teaching Learning Philosophy, a Practical Guide for Educators, through the CSWE Press, and he's also co-editor of the A to Z Self-Care Handbook for Social Workers and Other Helping Professionals, published by White Hat Publications. Dean Miller is also a proud foster and kinship alum. And so in this episode, we have a unique context, given we are emerging from COVID-19 and the ubiquity of virtual platforms that have been used for a variety of engagements. Now, the study for this paper was conducted in 2018 and the paper published in 2019 without really any thought being given to how virtual platforms like Zoom would become such a normal and everyday part of our lives. We talk about this and the idea of support groups in virtual spaces as we move forward. And I ask specific questions related to the paper, such as what is information seeking effectiveness? But information seeking effectiveness in the context of this paper relates to information seeking behaviors, generally things like Google searches, asking friends, but it also examines how support groups can be effective sources of information sharing and support. The paper describes how participants came to enjoy using Zoom for sharing resources related to foster parenting, and the support they experienced was very much welcomed. In fact, virtual support groups have greatly expanded in the past several years, and given the uptake of digital technologies post-COVID, Dean Miller and I agree, as you'll soon hear, that we likely will see much more in the way of virtual support and connection. This doesn't necessarily mean that there aren't going to be some challenges that we need to consider because we always need to be cognizant of the ethical and appropriate uses of digital technologies. So I really hope you enjoy this episode of the Husita podcast. We're recording via Zoom, so naturally there's always going to be some kind of interruptions and things that you might hear along the way. And if you want to find out more about Dean Miller and his research and other things, you can always follow him on Twitter at DrJMiller1. Or you can find some more resources on our blog page at www.husita.org. Now, on to the podcast. Well, welcome to the Husita podcast. We have Justin J. Miller, the Dean of the University of Kentucky School of Social Work. And we're going to be talking about the paper, Virtual Support Groups Among Adoptive Parents, Ideal for Information Seeking. 
So I'm really excited to have Dean Miller on the podcast with us today. Thank you again for joining with us. No problem. Thanks very much for having me. All right. So the first question I, I do this with all of our guests really is just to provide a little bit of background in regards to the paper, maybe talk a little bit about what information seeking actually is, what information seeking effectiveness is, and what it looks like among the peer support groups. Okay. So I guess just in terms of, of context, uh, at, here at the University of Kentucky College of Social Work in the Training Resource Center, for a number of years, uh, we've run a program. It's it's We call it ASK for short, but it's Adoption Support for Kentucky. And the program is really designed around the concept of traditional support groups for foster adoptive parents, you know, getting folks together with a common experience to kind of have and build a community of support. And uh, over the years, as we've kind of really worked on advancing uh, the practice of the use of support groups, one of the things that we got into was starting to think about virtual support groups. And again, I know that that's not a, a new concept, but in the space of foster and adoptive parents, uh, it, it was relatively novel when we kind of started with the idea. And we really wanted to, to get to a space where we started to understand how to best provide and support virtual support groups for foster adoptive parents. Of course, that begs the question, right? Like, so what is the purpose of these groups? And so we set out to kind of do some assessments and research, and we found out a lot of things, some of them very, um, you know, evident in a lot of the traditional literature and research about uh, support groups. But we also begin to get into a lot of the nuance around what it means to participate in a um, support group for foster and adoptive parents. And one of the big things that folks talked about was the need for accessing information. And I mean, relevant, real-time, consumable information. Mm -hmm. And I think that need is really born out of this, the practice that, you know, we're often communicating, but it's not in a consumable way. So when we think about how we message to folks or how we get resources to folks, or we often wonder why, you know, um, the needs of individuals don't match with the resources that we have. Uh, a lot of that really boils down to this concept of information seeking, right? So um, are folks able to get the information that they need from this platform or thing that you've set up? And that's really what we sought to ascertain and find out with this study. We wanted to take our virtual support groups that we had been piloting and really assess and see in a scientific way, you know, is this group good for, among other things, um, folks who want to access and receive information? And so that's really the context of the study and how it was born. I mean, I think that sounds really exciting. And, and given just the effects of COVID-19, this global pandemic, and I mean, you published this paper back in 2018 or 2019. I'm forgetting what year it is right now. So, But uh, we had no idea, right? We didn't really know what was coming down the line. And so this really, I think, was a, a perfect example to kind of show before COVID, but obviously now everybody post-COVID is like, yeah, virtual platforms are kind of the future. But you yeah. were showing that in regards to just peer support groups or with foster parents that this is important. Yeah, and I think that's the funny thing. We've joked that we were uh, ahead of our time, uh, quite literally, in terms of thinking through you know, and again, I, I want to be clear that it 
we weren't just interested in providing a support group for the sake of providing a group. Like this was much more than a checkbox. Um, you know, for me, I, I spent time in foster care as a young person. And so I realized and recognized the importance of supporting foster parents in the work that they do. And so we wanted to be in a space where we really sought to grapple with and understand, uh, you know, support groups in the virtual space. We were really surprised and shocked about how little information, particularly empirical research, there there was about, you know, virtual support groups in this space. Um, and you're right, it's it's been fascinating, you know, to get emails and calls now about about this particular paper when it's folks have kind of thought about, oh, well, this was in response to COVID. It's, well, no, actually, we we wrote it before COVID, yeah. COVID came about. But I, I do think it is it is relevant now, and it does shed a lot of light on, you know. Um, folks really grappling with how to effectively deliver a, a support group and how it important it can be if, if done right. And if you think about the platform that y'all utilized, it was, was it Zoom? Was that what I read? If I remember right? Yes. Yes. So Zoom has become, I mean, synonymous with virtual, you know, my kids all participated in their online school this past year via Zoom and a bunch of our fact, I mean, we're doing this podcast interview via Zoom right now. So using Zoom, even before it was like the thing to use, right, for these support groups. Was there, what were some of the, the benefits? What were some of the challenges related to using this platform in the way that y'all used it? Well, so I, I think that, you know, the benefits in retrospect were quite obvious, but we didn't know them at the time, right? Like we didn't have all the Zoom practice. I think now you say Zoom and everybody knows what you talk about, what you're talking about. A couple of years ago, that wasn't the case, right? Uh, somebody texted me earlier and said, hey, what are you doing? And I said, Zooming. And I didn't need to clarify any further. They knew exactly what I was talking about. Yeah. But a couple of years ago, that wasn't the case. So I think, you know, number one, it was getting people acclimated to the tech and, you know, we were, as we discussed before we, we came on, I often say that when you're talking about diversity, we often talk about race and gender, but we don't talk about generation. Mm -hmm. And I think it's really important that we kind of discuss and talk about the, the, the tech divide, even for something that is as quote unquote simple as Zoom, right? So we had folks who were a little worried or apprehensive about uh, uh, Zoom and how to use it. Um, there's also just a different environment. You know, I think virtually um, people get a little uh, of the brave juice and they're willing to say things that they otherwise would not say in a in a face to face support group. Uh -huh. So we, we had to deal with some of that. Um, of course, there's a security that goes along with um, having a, a closed group on Zoom. Um, you know, I've, I don't know about you. I've been in several large meetings that have been uh, uh, hacked or taken over by somebody who happened to stumble across our link. So, you know, these were all things that we hadn't really worked through because it was pre-COVID. And so those challenges were, were, were there, but we were able to really engage with the group. Part of the support group framework was supporting them and fostering support around using technology. Um, so that was a big piece of it. And I think that once the group started and we ran a pilot, you know, for eight, 10 or 12 sessions, um, folks really, they got comfortable with it and they realized um, how um, beneficial it could be and how it really allowed us to provide a service to folks who otherwise would not have received that service. And I think that's a, a huge takeaway is, is knowing that 
you know, without this platform, there are some people who would not have been able to participate in the support group at all. I also think there were the, um, you know, we used to joke with him, we called them the non-believers, the folks that just swore up and down that they had to be face-to-face and in the space with someone. Yeah. Um, and, you know, these, these support groups run in cycles. And so you have, you know, some of them that, you know, they were in the January timeframe and February timeframe when it's, it's cold outside and it's dark at five or six o'clock and all of a sudden a zoom meeting sounds a lot better than having to, to trek out. Um, as well, you have, these are foster and adoptive parents. So they have young people who they are caring for. And so we were able to be really creative and schedule different times and such for them to, to be on the zoom. So, you know, I think now folks have really recognized and know the benefit of using these virtual platforms. Um, it is important to, to recognize the context for when we started, we, we didn't have all of this experience. And so we were kind of working through and stumbling through some of it. But uh, we got there and ultimately, you know, we're able to to get to a space where we not only learned and were able to share the promise of these groups, but the participants, perhaps most importantly, were able to experience the strength and support of these virtual platforms for these support groups. Yeah, and that's what I liked in reading the paper, a um, couple of paragraphs or pages into it. Uh, one of your findings was that given the information seeking's a primary reason for why individuals choose to participate in support groups, your data indicates that virtual support groups facilitated via Zoom may be beneficial for adoptive parents. And so, like, I think now, post-COVID, uh, thinking about how we've done so much via Zoom and people have reconnected via these technological platforms, Zoom or otherwise, and seeing how these can be useful for a whole variety of reasons that maybe somebody without some of the knowledge or, you know, the, the history of tech, especially in social work and some of the, the uh, you know, adverse perspectives of tech and social work, they might look at this and go, well, yeah, duh, it makes sense. I mean, but, you know, what do they say about hindsight? It's always twenty twenty. <laughs> I, I think this is important. You know, I, th- I think that this is super important to help set some of that foundation for, as what I've talked about in other podcasts and with a lot of colleagues, we've seen this page turn re- in regards to tech and social work and that, like, it's actually really useful. Yes, yes. And I, and I think... You know, there are a couple of things kind of wrapped up there. And, and I remember in the early part of my academic career, I used to often be frustrated by this idea that I couldn't say something unless I could find a study that had found that. Right. Like it's this whole concept of having to find this, you know, affirmative information or not related to a thought. And I, I think what you say about these kind of, well, duh, or these kind of common sense moments I think it it is really important that we take the next step to to affirm or confirm or not those kind of common sense notions because particularly in the academic space we we often take that things are true yet we don't know and I think what we try to do with this study is say if this is one of our goals and this is what people need from this group can we start down the path empirically to say well we do know and can show that folks are, are getting information in a way that they need it from this group. Mm-hmm. I think number two, that there's a scientific way to do it, right? Like there is a, I mean, we were, we were quite fascinated to find that there are standard metrics around information seeking and, 
and, and those types of variables that you would want to measure. So uh, it's, it's extremely important that number one, we recognize the promise of tech and that number two, that, that researchers and program folks and evaluators start to kind of put together, share and disseminate information so that we can start to learn. You know, one of the things that we're, that we're working on now are the kind of follow-ups to these types of studies and looking at, well, how did COVID change the interplay here? And, mm. and what's that gonna mean for information seeking moving forward? Or what type of information are people seeking and how can they best um, receive that? Or how can we make information more consumable? So I think that this is really for us is just, you know, a very initial first step in getting into the promise of the virtual and tech space. And I'm really hopeful that others start to, you know, conduct or build on these types of studies so that, um, you know, we, we all learn and benefit from it. Yeah, you know, and I'm glad you bring that up about the information seeking piece in these digital spaces, because I write a lot about digital literacies, right? And there's a lot of crap on the internet. (laughs) And so when I think about even just some of these spaces for interacting to find support, but also to seek that information, if it's about being foster parents or, you know, anything related to whatever you're interested in. I think there is something to be looked at, examined, or better understood in relation to how these groups can also facilitate uh, broadly digital literacies, but more specifically, debunking misinformation. I mean, it's running rampant right now, right? And social media is at fault for a lot of that, but there are people behind that that are fueling that fire. Yeah, and I I think that that gets to a really important point about, if you think about, you know, this piece of work and, and really the precursor to it is it's really seeking to understand what people need or what or what they want or, or what they're seeking and then how we develop programming or service to match that. And so that you you are able to I think there are a lot of assumptions made about why people come to a group. I mean, I'm the type where I might not need a lot of support. I might just be coming to learn about this resource or that resource. And everyone will come to the group or a group for a different reason. Mm-hmm. And it's very hard to, to meet all those needs. And so I think doing this kind of work allows you to, you know, you make a, a, an efficient use of resources, but you also, you know, you, you, you allow people to access and see the value. And when you think about what these folks are doing, like these are foster adoptive parents, they are charged with caring for these young people who have often been through very traumatic experiences. Mm -hmm. It's our responsibility to do everything we can to ensure that we are giving them the service they need. And I think far too often, you know, with social services in general, we end up giving people what we have instead of giving them what they need. And oftentimes those are two very different things. So even in the, in the process of saying, well, what do people want from this group? We, we were able to find out that it was information seeking, and then we were able to test and assess that. So no matter what group it is, or frankly, what constituency service recipient group it may be, I think taking the the time to really understand the the why part of the service and and the why part of the intervention, and then backing up some project assessment, evaluation, research, whatever you want to call it, to to test and see if that is happening, 
is a really, really worthwhile endeavor. Um, if for nothing else, then you realize the importance of the work that that these folks are doing in, in caring for these young people. And if uh, if I can more effectively get them some information, well, then, mm -hmm. no, that's what we want to do. And if that takes me uh, spending a little more time on the front side to plan it out, well, then so be it. I think there's another piece in here that is still super important to acknowledge is just the support side of this. The information seeking is absolutely critical and I think super important and also speaks to my bias about digital literacy stuff. But as you were saying, giving people what they already have as opposed to what they need, sometimes we don't really know what it is that we need until someone articulates that or brings something that we're like, oh, wow this is so great. This is exactly what I needed. And um, I can't remember where I had in the paper, but I know that there were some uh, findings related to the support side of this, this group, this virtual group that, um, and we kind of alluded to it in the beginning when you're talking a little bit about how people feel like they, we need that face to face in order to replicate or uh, to have that experience where people can really connect and feel supported or provide support. But that's not totally the case, at least within your paper. The virtual support group showed that we can, in fact, replicate the support that people feel in, in the real. Yeah, and I think that's, that's a really important part of a lot of these assumptions that we make, right, is, is that we, we, we really need to, to test those. And I, it goes back to the, the, the comments about common sense. You know, we, we think that so many things are true and, until we find out that they're not. And we're not going to find out if, if that they're not unless we ask the right questions. And so, um, you know, knowing that, uh, you know, you know, where I'm at, we're, we're a big state and there's a lot of ground to cover. And if I, I can't go into it thinking that I can have physical support groups for everybody. But what I can do is try to test out delivery models to see if I can mimic and have a similar impact. And um, that's that's what we were able to do through this virtual mechanism now. I'm, I'm also careful to know and to understand that that's how it worked out this time. And right. it may look different for a different group composition. It may, you know, folks, there may be a, I'm really interested to see if there's a downsway in Zooming now because folks can actually be face-to-face -face and what that looks like. Um, but, but I say, you know, we, we talk about online a lot and we talk about folks making choices about attending things virtual or face-to-face. -face. And I kind of joke that, you know, people are as faithful as their options. Meaning if they only have the option for face to face, well, then that's what they well, that's what they'll participate in. Mm -hmm. But you'll know what they want when you give them the option of doing something else. And and what we uh, have learned from this particular experience and, 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 and paper is that if we give them another option and we invest in making that option, you know, solid and viable and we understand what that option is supposed to deliver that we can mimic the support that they otherwise wouldn't thought that they would have had. And it's interesting that now, you know, we're having conversations of, do we continue face-to-face -face groups? Yeah. Because it's, we're in such a space where this has really worked out for folks. And I mean, if, if we try to stop virtual groups in some of these places, they, you know, they'd hang me out to dry because they, they, they become dependent on them in, in a good way. Yeah. Yeah. So, I think that uh, ultimately, you know, we, we've, we've uh, learned that we can do this in a different way and uh, folks have, have gotten used to that different way. And uh, again, I, it's, it's so important to highlight that some of these folks, if not for the tech piece, would not have been able to participate. Now, you think about 
just just the ethical side of service delivery to deny folks service because of a digital or tech divide is just uh, it, it, we if, if we can figure out how to order groceries and pull up and they drop them off in your car, we should be able to figure out how to deliver solid virtual support groups. Exactly. Exactly. I think there's so much room for improvement for organizations, human service organizations around the world to leverage technology in good ethical and appropriate ways. We always have to throw that caveat in there. You know, that's one of the things that we care about at HUCETA. That's part of our mission is the ethical and appropriate use of technology. But um, given all of that and thinking about how we move forward, I wanted to ask you that question just, you know, and you're alluding to it with the options um, and you may or may not answer this. Do you think people will want more of a, a hybrid approach? Will they want to go back to in-person? I'm assuming that there's probably a little bit of burnout with Zoom. I'm burned out on Zoom, to be honest, but uh, I don't want it to go away totally. Um, but, you know, Along with that, what do you think some human service delivery organizations can do in order to leverage some of these virtual platforms, whether it's Zoom or something else? So I think there's several things they could do. I think, number one, kind of think more about uh, expansive partnerships as it relates to delivering services. And that requires that we totally revisit the current service delivery system and that we become okay with not getting it quite right. And, and, and what I mean is oftentimes, you know, we're, we're scared that we're gonna do something wrong. And because and in social services, that can have a huge consequence. Mm -hmm. But if we are going to get to a space where we're starting to test these other types of ideas, we have to, to kind of expand the way that we're thinking about the current service delivery. And quite frankly, I think we're getting to a part where it's it becomes necessary. Like when you think about efficiencies, and again, this is not to say that that tech is, is a necessarily an end-all be-all, mm -hmm. but it can address a lot of the challenges that we see in human services. And we talk about this some in the paper in terms of, you know, the financial implications, efficiencies, access, et cetera. There are ways that we can go about delivering these services, uh, but it's going to require kind of reframing, thinking a little critically about service delivery, uh, capacity building, not only with the organizations, I think that we have to train and get organizations to a better space as it relates to tech, but also the consumers uh, thinking about, you know, what does it look like? Uh, I think we assume everyone has a laptop uh, and, and, a, and a smartphone. And while that is mostly the case, there are folks who, who don't. Um, we talk about accessibility a lot. And you know, we've had um, to, to engage with service providers around thinking about hotspots and things like that for folks. So, you know, I, I think it's gonna require really, number one, rethinking the current service delivery system with a mind on efficiency. Uh, number two, building capacity, not only within the organization, but outside the organization to think about the service recipients and what does it look like to, to provide service in this space. And then number three, that we continue to assess and evaluate these services so that, and then that we disseminate and share that information via journals, podcasts, et cetera, so that folks can know. And, you know, if, if uh, Jim, if you've, if you've uh, learned something or messed up something with a group, I, I don't want to repeat that, right? So yeah. if I talk to you and we're working together, then I can, you can say, hey, I've tried that before. That's not something you probably want to do. So I think that those are the ways that we can start to move to a different space. 
And to answer your first question, I don't think, I don't know that we have a choice. I, mm-hmm. I think that we're really in a space where, you know, for many different reasons, we have to access and use everything that is good about technology and recognize that it's not all good, but the same can be said for face-to-face service delivery. Like it's not all good. <laughs> nothing, nothing is all anything, right? Yeah. But, but we can leverage the technology and, and, and it's also about understanding what the service is. So, you know, we're finding that um, you take students, for example, students, a lot of them want to come back and be face to face for social occasions, but not necessarily class occasions. And yeah. So we're thinking about well, what does a system look like where we deliver this thing this way and that thing that way. And that to me is the fun part of, you know, trying things and uh, being OK with with getting them wrong and coming on here and bantering with you about what worked and what didn't in hopes that uh, someone else that they, they won't have to go through the headaches that, that we went through. Well, and I think that's a great example to think about education, but even just support groups again, in general, how, at least with education, you know, we've always had the golden standard in the classroom. This is best practice in lectures and, and, you know, uh, active learning strategies. They can't be replicated online, but we've seen, at least over the last five to 10 years, a lot of them can. Uh, We know there's obviously still a place for in the classroom, and I can't wait to get back into the classroom. But uh, we've seen over the last 10 to 20 years, technology has transformed regular in the classroom pedagogy and and methods. It's, It's helped drive them to get better because we've started to ask those questions like, well, what is so good about teaching online? What's so good about teaching in the classroom? So the same thing with uh, the support groups. I'm wondering, do you think we are seeing now, uh, especially now post-COVID, influence where things have happened in a virtual platform that are now coming into the real life, into the into the actual groups themselves? And, and people are saying, well, hey, in my Zoom group last week, we did this or talked about this. And so now in real life, in person, we're seeing things evolve. Yeah, I think so. And I think it, it you know, a lot of it, um, and this is kind of connected to something that we talked about earlier was with these assumptions that we make. And, hmm. you know, and I, my, my faculty and staff have heard me say a lot, but have we really? Like, that's the question I always ask because we say, well, we assume that, you know, we've been in the lectures have worked and then like, but, but have we really like, do, do we know that to be the case? And it goes back to, well, we've been as faithful as our options, meaning it's the only thing we've known. Like we haven't tried it another way. And so, you know, we, we, we do need to kind of look at longer term, what these outcomes are. Mm -hmm. Um, And we have, started to see some of the things in the virtual space play out in other spaces um, in terms of even making connections, right? Like um, I've, I, I have not met you before today, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But now if we're at a conference or somewhere and I see you, then then I've met you and I talk and we interact, but that started in a virtual space. And yeah. so even if nothing but for the connections that you make, it expands where all of a sudden my support network or my information infrastructure is much bigger than the neighborhood that I live in, right? And so I think you see it in in a number of different ways. And even in trying to assess the impact, we have to be really creative and open. If we can't assess the impact in the same way that we might have for a face-to-face type session or face-to-face type meeting. And so um, in short, 
yes, I think that you do see um, things um, mimic. And, and again, I think overwhelmingly for this particular group, we've seen, um, you know, the positive sides of that. But we've also seen we, we have teenage support groups and such that happen in the virtual space. And, you know, some kids that might have talked mess to each other in the virtual space and they saw each other and then, you know, got into a fight. Those things will happen. Right. Yeah. Um, and we, it's funny, we assumed that that was because of the tech space. I'm like, well, we don't know that to be the case. They, it, it could have very well popped up in the face-to-face yeah. uh, meetings. But again, I think it's people will, um, you know, kind of push towards what they want to believe in. And again, I think the, the impetus for this project and the true goal was to really step back and say, no matter what I may or may not think about tech, can we get people what they need? And I, and I hope that moving forward, you know, um, I wasn't a big social media fan before mm-hmm. like the last year. And, and it's funny because, you know, now I'm all about it and I recognize the power of it. Um, and I was not a believer before, before, <laughs> you know, recently. So it doesn't mean that it wasn't impactful. It just means it wasn't my thing. And I think that there are a lot of us who are in spaces where certain pieces of tech, like they're just, they're not my thing. And a lot of times it's not my thing because I don't know anything about it. So yeah. if we go about building capacity and helping people to develop skills, I think that some of that will change. But what we should not do is, you know, if, if you know, Jim, if you're the, if you're the CEO or executive director at an agency and you're not into tech, that's cool, but you shouldn't hold it up in terms of the service provision. It shouldn't be about I always say my way of thinking is a way and not the way. Yeah. So I don't I don't have to be into it to recognize the promise and potential. And I want folks who um, are working with me and around me to, to kind of be in that space so that you can pick up and, and know what I what I don't know. I mean, I got you know, we, we have teenage foster kids that we work with. They're, they're running tech circles around me. Like I, I just can't keep up. Yeah. Uh, I'm happy for that. Like I, I, I want them to do that because they help us kind of bring a different edge to our service. So um, ultimately, yes, we, we will see things mimic in both spaces. Uh, and I think what we should really seek to do is assess um, the impact. You know, a lot of when you look at support group literature in general, a lot of it's about participation. And I always say, I don't want to assess participation. I want to assess impact. I don't care how many people participated. Did it change the lives of any of them? Yeah. And and I think focusing on that will allow us to kind of sift out the good from the bad. And we're not always going to get it right, but that's not the fault of technology. Like we don't get it right in face-to-face space either. So let's have a critical conversation, some critical discourse about what that means and, and, and try to learn and advance what we can. Well, and I think that's interesting because a lot of what I hear you saying is that these are virtual platforms and all tech is really just a tool in our toolbox, so to speak, that we can use in a number of different ways to advance our cause, our mission, or any kind of movement, right? And we could go very broad with that. And I think that's important to remember that. And, and a lot of young people are there in those spaces and familiar with this technology. But as I've done a lot of research over the years, looking at some of this and, and with young people, they still need some guidance. And so I want to go back to something you said a little bit earlier in the podcast about sometimes people, they get a little bit of that brave juice. I can't remember exactly what you said, yeah, but yeah. you know, when they're in a virtual or online space, they may say or do something that they otherwise probably wouldn't do if it was face to face in real life. 
And that's totally true, right? We have a lot of people that will say and do things online that's like, what were you thinking? But um, I'm wondering, with thinking about someone who's leading a virtual support group, if they have to, because I know in, in a regular support group, any type of group work, you're constantly assessing the group, looking where you might need to intervene or do uh, employ certain tactics in order to make sure that people feel safe to share or to connect or uh, engage in the group. So what does that look like in the virtual space? So I think it, it, it looks very much like the same. One of the things that we were very mindful of, and we discussed this some in the paper, is it, the importance of support for the facilitator. Like because Because managing in the tech space is a different thing. It's a mm. fundamentally different thing. And so, you know, it's interesting that we will often go to the negative examples and I'm using the term negative very purposefully to say, well, you know, so-and-so got brave and they said something they wouldn't have otherwise said. But what is also true is people also constructively share in ways that they would have not otherwise shared. Yeah. So again, both of those things kind of run together and in any support group, no matter the delivery mechanism, it is extremely important to support the facilitator and kind of understanding hey, this is, this is the group dynamic. You know, this is the difference between this open group and this closed group. This is how you seek to understand what the challenges are. But the power of going into a group as a facilitator, knowing what people expect from the group. So doing the front side work to know and understand people want information from this group, right? Like they, they want support, they want this, they want that, but they also want information. So as a facilitator, that is valuable to know. And we were able to really support our facilitators. We have a, um, a, a kind of, we call it a hard knock training that they have around um, really understanding not just support group dynamics, but the virtual space and how that looks different, um, how you might manage time. And again, some of the, the functions around, you know, you do have to know how to mute folks and you do have to, yeah. like, those are just things that happen. So we spent some time with that. But, but, but again, I, I would really, really hope that people look at that in a holistic way. So in the same way that folks say things they otherwise wouldn't say, they share things they otherwise wouldn't share. They uh, are willing to support folks in a way that they otherwise could not. Um, you know, if you're if you're having trouble with your 14 year old and I got a 14 year old, hey, Jimmy, call me offline and we'll talk about it. like, those are the things that we saw happening. And it was, those far outweighed the incidents where somebody might've made a snide remark. Yeah. Um, and, and, and again, I don't know that those would have happened otherwise. I mean, I've seen some of the emerging research about, you know, uh, what people refer to as their virtual selves and kind of what that looks like. Uh, but but again, it, it, it cuts both ways. And um, that makes it all the more important to really support your facilitators, you know, lay down really good ground rules and expectations for how we function. Um, again, you would do that in any space, but it does look different or it may be more important in the virtual space to do that um and and for us we found that it that it was i think now post-covid that may not be as big of a deal because folks kind of understand you know how, how, what what mute means if, if something's going on in the background whereas before we literally i remember very distinctly we had to teach facilitators about the mute function and what that meant yeah uh, i mean now you just wouldn't people start off in mute right like you have, right. To, you have to get off of it so um, that, that support piece, we often talk about supporting the supporters is what we call it. So how do you support those facilitators? And then we would have 
almost support group type meetings with those facilitators to talk about what was happening in their virtual space, what they were comfortable with, what they weren't, and how we could get them the support and, and information that they needed to do what it is we were asking them to do. And that was a huge part of this group. You know, group is only is gonna be as good as this facilitator. So that was a huge part in getting these groups to a place where folks felt like they were valuable and they would get to get the information they needed. Well, I don't want to keep you super long today. I know you're a busy guy. So um, last quick question is, again, just thinking about like this idea of virtual support groups. What's next for y'all? Are you uh, going to keep moving forward with some virtual support groups in your project there or? Oh, yeah. So we are um, we are full steam ahead in the virtual electronic space. So um, we've uh, developed and started implementing, um, you know, some groups for um, young people who have been in foster adoptive kinship care. So that's been, um, you know, pretty well received. Mm -hmm. um, we are, you know, working in the space around virtual simulations and what that means in terms of uh, foster parenting and support dealing with, you know, young people with problematic behaviors. Uh, we're also doing a lot of work uh, in the space of workforce development. So how can we use tech to prepare people in a different way? Wow. Uh, so we're, we're doing some, some tech, tech pieces around um, investigatory simulations for child welfare workers. Um, so we are, you know, we, we're just in a space that in, in, in social work, we, we always say you start, start where you are. And we're just acknowledging like, this is where we are. And we don't, I'll be the first to say, you know, some tech I could take it and leave it. Some of it I really like, some of it I don't, but I recognize that it's it's not all about me necessarily and what I think. Ultimately, I want to provide a good service and or make sure, make sure people are prepared to provide a good service. Um, I've been on the other side of that service as a young person, so I know how important it is. And and whatever we need to do to, to advance that is what we'll do. So we're excited to continue kind of along this line of inquiry with the support groups and some of the work workspace development pieces and uh, we'll, we'll, we'll uh, continue plotting forth. We'll continue trying to put out science uh, in, a, in a way that um, informs, you know, folks about what we've learned. I think it's, it's really important to know um, what not to do <laughs> uh, in, in terms of some of these things. So we want to share what, whatever conclusions we come to. Um, and, you know, we, we look forward to continuing to, to partner with folks that we have thus far and then, engaging with new with new people and new teams that we have not had the ability to uh, connect with yet. And I think the interesting part of that is that we will most likely connect and get that information through technology. So ultimately, we get back to the same space, yeah. uh, no matter no matter what way we cut it. Well, excellent. I think it's amazing. It's awesome. I'm so glad that you are a part of this space, especially with your background and experience. And your leadership is really going to be phenomenal in helping to progress this area of social work. I mean, not just here, but I think around the world as people start to see more and more about what's going on. So, uh, Dean Miller, thank you again so much for being on the Husita podcast. Really, really appreciate it. All right. Thank you very much for having me. The Husita Podcast is a production of the Human Services Information Technology Association. If you have any ideas or suggestions for the podcast, please connect with us on our website at www.husita.org, on Twitter at Husita.org, or on Facebook at facebook.com slash Husita.org. 
Be sure to rate the podcast and share it with your networks to help us create a world where information technology is used to promote the social good and human well-being. My name is Jimmy Young. You can also connect with me on Twitter at JimmySW. Thanks for listening to the podcast.